The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to Breakdown an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajc.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. The path to justice for Ahmaud Arbery and his family has been a long and arduous one. But the indictment is yet another step in the right direction. Former DA Johnson may not have pulled the trigger on the day Ahmaud was murdered, but she played a starring role in the cover-up. I don't even think it alleges a crime at all. I mean, it is just not even close, in my opinion, to uh, alleging a crime against uh, Jackie Johnson in this case. Um, I, I, I'm just shocked that the attorney general would think that this indictment even comes close to being a uh, legitimate indictment against a, a disc attorney. I'm not pointing fingers here, but some of what is going on in this courtroom over the last year or so has been uh, arguments uh, directed at the court that may be tailored at other audiences and um, that may have different themes and how to describe it. When we try this case, we're going to be presenting evidence and we'll have argument based on that evidence. And argument is not supported by the evidence, and it becomes objection. So, here we are. Almost 20 months to the day Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed, we have a murder trial that starts on Monday. Hundreds of prospective jurors are being called in and will be questioned in the coming days, if not weeks. And welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm joined by Asia Burns, a breaking news reporter for the AJC. By the time you hear this, we'll be in Brunswick to cover the trial. First, we have some new developments since our last episode to tell you about. One of them is a decision by Judge Timothy Walmsley, who is presiding over the case. As we told you in Episode 11, the judge denied the defense's request to let the jury hear about Ahmad's past run-ins with the law. Unless the prosecution opens the door, making a critical mistake at trial, no evidence of Ahmad's prior bad acts will be admitted. Wamsley followed up that ruling with another on October 1st. Similarly, he said the defense cannot introduce evidence of Ahmad's mental illness at trial. Both rulings are big victories for the prosecution. 
As you'll remember us telling you, Ahmad was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder after his probation officer referred him to be evaluated in 2018. Ahmad said he sometimes had delusions that commanded him to rob and hurt people. Ahmad was prescribed medication, but had stopped taking it. His mom, Wanda Cooper, said Ahmad went for runs as a way of self-medicating and was doing so the day he died. The defense argued in their motion that Ahmad's mental health records were important to their self-defense case and showing the jury who was the initial aggressor. The defense contended the records show that Ahmad's mental illness caused him to misinterpret the actions of others and act impulsively and aggressively. Essentially, they say his mental illness, when left untreated, explains why the unarmed Ahmad charged at Travis, who was holding a loaded shotgun. But Walmsley ruled against the defense on multiple grounds. The judge noted that when Ahmad went to Gateway Behavioral Health in December 2018, he signed a release of his medical records. Yet that release expired one year after it was signed, which was almost two years ago. And the mental health privilege that shields such documents from review survives the death of a patient. As he found when denying the prior bad act evidence, Walmsley noted that Travis and Greg did not know Ahmad and were not aware he had a mental health condition. Walmsley also said the cell phone video taken by Roddy Bryan will provide the jury a direct account of the moments leading up to Ahmad's death. The judge wrote, quote, That evidence permits the jury to make an appropriate determination under Georgia law as to the aggressor at the moment Arbery turned toward Travis McMichael. And he added, quote, The jury can watch the video, make deductions, and reach conclusions. Walmsley also questioned the evaluation. He noted the diagnosis was made after a single visit to Gateway, and by a registered nurse who was not formally trained on mental health. There was no follow-up or any continued treatment that would suggest the diagnosis was correct. Walmsley even characterized it as a highly questionable diagnosis, and he said it's apparent from the defense's arguments that they intend to use the mental health records to engage in speculation why Ahmad acted the way he did on February 23, 2020. But that's not going to happen now. I'm not surprised at all that they didn't let the mental health evidence in. We interviewed lawyer Ashley Merchant about this. You've heard her expert commentary in prior breakdown seasons. Um, they would have, the defense would have had to have shown that their clients actually knew about his mental health diagnoses and his mental health history in order for it to be relevant. If they didn't know about that at the time, I don't see how it's relevant towards their state of mind, which is what they were essentially trying to get it in under. Again, I'm sure the defense will look for any opening it can get to find a way to introduce this evidence. We will see. We asked Merchant what she would do if she were one of the defense lawyers and had been told she couldn't introduce evidence of Ahmad's past bad acts or his mental illness. I would continue doing what they're doing, trying to get all of the evidence excluded that shows that their client had any racial bias. And that's what they're trying to do. I mean, right now we've seen the, the latest with the, um, the vanity plate. You know, that's a big issue because the state is trying to show that, that their clients are racist. And I think that they need to try very hard to keep that out from in front of the jury. The other thing is they're going to have to really humanize their clients. Um, they're going to have to try to get the jury to look beyond the racist history that's going to come in. I mean, it's, you know, we all know that the trial is going to be an issue of, you know, whether or not these, these folks were racist or not. Um, and so they really have to try and get the jury to see that these people are more than their racist attitudes. And if they can do that, then they have a shot. But it's going to be very hard to humanize these folks in front of the jury. 
You heard her mention the vanity plate. The attorneys representing the McMichaels recently filed a motion asking that the judge keep the state from showing a photograph of the front of Travis's truck with a vanity license plate. The plate in question depicts George's previous state flag, which prominently featured the Confederate battle emblem. In February 1956, Georgia lawmakers changed the state flag to one with the Confederate emblem to protest the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education, the case that mandated the desegregation of schools. That state flag was flown from 1956 until it was changed in 2001. The next flag had a smaller replica of the prior flag. Two years later, that replica and the Confederate emblem were completely removed. The Georgia flag has a fraught history. I remember driving across South Georgia after the change, seeing Confederate flags flying in people's front yards over big yard signs that said, never forget. The Democratic governor who got the flag changed was voted out of office, at least partly because of just that. Since then, not everyone in Georgia has been able to let go of the previous banner. Travis was apparently one of them. So let's have a look at that motion. The defense is claiming the state has two reasons to show the photo. First, to say that Ahmad saw the vanity plate and made a conjecture about its meaning that gave him reason to fear the truck and run away from it. Then, the motion says that the state's secondary purpose would be to paint the picture that Travis put the vanity plate on his truck in order to display a bias or prejudice. The motion says the photograph of the vanity plate would be prejudicial against Travis. It equates it to bringing in prior act evidence against the McMichaels. The defense also called into question the relevance of the photograph in the first place. They say, quote, The state had already informed the defense in the court that it did not intend to introduce any evidence that spoke to Mr. Arbery's state of mind or his intent, motive, plan, etc., unquote. So essentially the defense is saying that evidence related to Ahmad's state of mind was already found not to be relevant. So any state of mind he may have been in due to seeing the vanity plate shouldn't be relevant either? That's what they seem to be saying. As expected, the state pushed back against it. In a response, prosecutors said they will not include evidence of racial animus in the form of communications by the defendants. That's obviously referencing some of those damning text messages by Travis and Roddy. But the prosecution also qualified that by saying the state does not intend to introduce it in its case-in-chief. That means there's likely a plan to introduce it in rebuttal after the defense finishes presenting its case, after Greg and Travis testify, which could very well happen. The prosecution motion also said the state can present any evidence related to motive, and since the state is arguing that racial animus was the motive, that would include a vanity plate with a Confederate battle emblem on it. The prosecution's response also points out that Travis bought the truck sometime in January of 2020, which was one month before Ahmad was killed. And that plate was on the truck when the McMichaels encountered him in Satilla Shores. Prosecutors wrote, Travis McMichael knowingly, intentionally, and purposefully attached a vanity plate to the front of his truck for all the world to see. That was his choice. And the fact that this vanity plate was on the front of his pickup truck on February 23, 2020, can be fully used by the state to illustrate Travis's intent and motive. The prosecution added, A jury can interpret that however they feel is appropriate. Here's Ashley Merchant, again, putting it in perspective. I think that would actually have a huge impact on the jury. Um, And if you think about it, you know, if you watch 
if you watch movies about history, you know, during the civil rights movement and, and during slavery, you saw a lot of the Jim Crow era things where there were symbols. I mean, we see Confederate symbols being taken down. These symbols were used as a form of oppression. I mean, <laughs> people can debate it all they want, but they were used. They were put into the town square to try and um, curb behavior and try and oppress behavior and try and put fear in people. Same thing with this vanity plate. I think it's very easy for for jurors to take that leap that this vanity plate was also used to put fear in the minds of certain types of people. It gives, it, it makes the defense have their job cut out for them um, because what I would think that they need to do is they need to put this as more of a Southern heritage. You know, the same type of argument we see when we're talking about the town square and whether or not the Confederate soldier is going to be taken down or not. You hear one side saying, well, this is, this is, um, you know, Southern heritage. This is our history sort of thing. And then you see this other side saying, this is, this is our history. That's bad. Um, and so they have, a, you know, the defense is going to have to try and argue that this is Southern history, that he is not putting this vanity plate up to try and scare Arbery, to try and, you know, scare other individuals, but that it's more of a Southern history thing. And, and you know, if, if they've got a couple of jurors that that resonates with, they may be able to get a hold out. But I think the vanity plate is going to be a very difficult image to overcome. She also said whether this type of evidence comes in hinges on whether the defendants choose to take the stand and testify in their own defense. And that's one of the things that's always hard when you see these pretrial rulings, because things are being kept out. But then when someone testifies, they all of a sudden could then become relevant. They could become impeachment. They could become character evidence. So like the vanity plate, let's just take that as an example. Let's say the judge keeps that out and says that they can't bring that in. Well, so then you've got them actually taking the stand. And if they say, well, I'm not racist, then boom, all of their history of being racist is now all of a sudden fair game. So it's called opening the door. And that would mean that they could easily open the door to anything to show that they had racist tendencies. So I think that's going to be a really interesting strategy decision because you need your clients to testify. I mean, in, in this type of case, as a defense lawyer, you need your clients to testify. You need to humanize them. The jury needs to hear from them. But it's a very, very risky thing to do because the second they they indicate that they're not racist, the second that they, they plead to the jury that they're not actually racist, then boom, all of this stuff that before they were able to keep out all of a sudden becomes relevant. And that's really the, the hardest part in defending a case like this is to make that strategy call, to decide whether or not it's worth the risk to put your client up. Judge Wamsley had yet to rule on the license plate motion when we recorded this episode. He had also yet to rule on some other pretrial motions. One by the prosecution seeks to keep out any mention that a small amount of THC from marijuana was in Ahmad's system when he died. The prosecution said there's no way to know whether Ahmad was under the influence of marijuana when he was killed. Marijuana can stay in your system for days. And the state said no one can say what, if any, effect the marijuana had on Ahmad at the time of his death. The state is also asking Judge Walmsley to prohibit the defense from putting into evidence that Ahmad was on probation on the day he died. The defense has said that could have been one of the reasons Ahmad ran away from Travis and Greg that day. But the prosecution said this is inadmissible bad character evidence, and it would allow the defense to engage in speculation. There have also been some increasingly testy exchanges between the McMichaels lawyers and the prosecution over the state's proposed gag order. We talked about that in the prior episode. I can't say I love that. I can't even say that I like it. The state's motion referred to the statement Jason Sheffield gave us after Walmsley ruled out evidence of Ahmad's bad character. 
The prosecution said the statement asked the public to question the integrity of the justice system and the rules of evidence. You remember Jason Sheffield, one of the attorneys defending Travis McMichael in this case. He said the jury that's picked for the case will want to know why Ahmad was in the Satilla Shores neighborhood the day that he died. And why he ran when confronted by the McMichaels. And at the time, Sheffield said, now the jury will be denied the truth. After the state sought the gag order to clamp down on what's called extrajudicial statements, the defense found it hard to stomach. The response filed by Travis's and Greg's lawyers said almost all of the news coverage has been, and these are their words, slanted towards the state's position. Their motion said the narrative is that Ahmad was simply out for an innocent jog when three white men hunted him down and shot him because they were racist. And the defense motion lists quite a few examples of statements the Arbery family has made to reporters, including what they said on our last breakdown episode. The motion noted the family has called Ahmad's death a public lynching and said he was minding his own business when he was killed. That, the defense says, has produced thousands of articles across multiple mediums and platforms. And those articles, the attorneys say, have, quote, saturated every household with a television, computer, or mailbox, thus obliterating the presumption of innocence. And for that reason, the defense said it must be able to try to balance and respond to the narrative the state, Ahmad's family, and the biased members of the media are spreading. But that's not the end of it at all. In fact, it seems to be getting personal. The prosecution replied to the defense's response. It said that although the attorneys for the McMichaels claim to be making statements to the media to counteract negative publicity around their clients, that's not what they're actually doing. Its motion said, in bold print, quote, Defense counsel barely talks about their clients. Then it said, the main focus has been on the character of the victim, his prior bad acts, of which the defendants knew nothing, and his mental health, again, of which the defendants knew nothing, and criticism designed to undermine confidence in the justice system. While the lawyers for Travis and Greg did spend quite a bit of time with us talking about their clients' past, that was in episode four. So our experience has not been that they barely talk about their clients. I'm just saying. And once again, the AJC's lawyer, Tom Clyde, came to the rescue. You'll remember he previously argued against a defense motion to bar the media during an important part of the jury selection process. Tom has been keeping up with the court filings in the case. This time, he filed a brief on behalf of the news media opposing the state's motion for a gag order. Tom notes that the state's motion seems to focus on a single statement by the defense counsel regarding public evidence. And he says the state's motion does not acknowledge the statements by government leaders, the Arbery family, and their prominent civil rights attorneys condemning the McMichaels and Bryan. And he emphasizes the importance of balanced reporting in this case. He says that because the public interest in the case is so strong, and since statements on behalf of the Arbery family are part of the larger conversation out there, it's necessary for the press to be able to get comment from the other side. Tom also said that trials and criminal prosecutions are an important component of American government and should be a matter of public discussion, debate, and scrutiny. For that reason, any motion that could stand in the way of that happening has to have a very, very good reason. And he said that's just not the case here, so the state's motion should be denied. And, just as we were recording this episode, Wamsley issued his ruling. He granted it, in part. He said the statements criticizing rulings that deemed some evidence inadmissible caused him, quote, grave concern, unquote. So he ordered the state and the defense to refrain from giving an opinion out of court related to, one, 
evidence previously ruled inadmissible, two, evidence ruled inadmissible at trial, and three, matters that lawyers know, or reasonably should know, will be inadmissible at trial and could prejudice an impartial trial. Wamsley did allow, however, the defense to make some statements. Those are what any reasonable lawyers would believe is required to protect their clients from substantial undue prejudice brought on by recent publicity. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Okay, on Monday, hundreds of Glen County residents will begin showing up for jury service. As Breakdown listeners know, jury selection is an incredibly important part of a trial. We've explained the process in prior seasons, but it bears repeating, especially in this case. So we all use that term, right, jury selection, and it's really a misnomer because nobody selects a jury. You deselect a jury. That's Denise Delarue. She's a lawyer and has been a jury consultant in some of the nation's most high-profile cases. The Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, one of the Boston Marathon bombers, Zokar Zarnayev and former NFL star linebacker Ray Lewis. So for people who haven't been on jury duty or been in a courtroom, they may not be aware that each side, as you all know, Bill, gets a certain number of called peremptory challenges, people that get to kick off the jury. So you never get to choose a juror that you want or select a juror that you want. You just get to kick off those that you don't want or can't live with. And you can do that for any reason at all, except for uh, the basis of race or gender. You can't kick somebody off for either of those reasons, that's illegal. But if you don't like their looks, if you don't like the bumper stickers on their car, uh, if you don't like the clubs they belong to, you can kick those off. But then who's left is the jury. So neither side gets to pick a juror, you're just left with who you didn't kick off. Delarue says lawyers can sit around and dream up the ideal juror they'd like to be hearing their case, but it's really just a fun or exacerbating exercise because it's not going to happen. Typically, if you see an ideal juror for you, you can be darn sure your opponent's going to kick that juror off unless they're sleeping or see the case in a totally different way than you do. So in most situations, there are very few, quote, ideal jurors for either side actually sitting on the juror. jury. They're those people in the middle that either side thought that they could live with. So typically on a jury, we don't see any, quote, ideal jurors for either side because they've been eliminated. So what we do see is a jury made up of people that either side thought they could live with for this particular case. Delarue said there are more layers to this case than most. And the most important people for the defense to get rid of are those who know a good bit about the case and have strong opinions about it. I would say the next layer would be people whose worldview is is one that they are going to see this through racial lens. Um, 
you know, this is probably the case where that age old question, what bumper stickers do you have on your car, uh, would be very telling for both sides. Delarue makes note of the defense's motion to keep out photos of Travis's vanity license plate, the one with the Confederate battle emblem. The prosecution would want to get off anybody that had that tag or a bumper sticker like they're on their car. And I would think the defense would be very cautious about anybody who had a Black Lives Matter or a similar sticker on their car, because that lets us know the, the lens through which they see the world and are going to see this case. It's almost inescapable. Delarue said she hopes Judge Walmsley gives the lawyers enough time to explore sensitive issues touching on race with the prospective jurors. She tells us she wouldn't be surprised if it takes at least two weeks to get a qualified poll of about 50 prospective jurors. She said jury selection for the Unabomber and Boston Marathon bombing cases took six to eight weeks. We hope and pray that's not the case here. Absolutely. And while most people try to get out of jury service, that might not necessarily be the case here. I don't doubt that there are going to be some people with an agenda on both sides who try to get on the case because it feels so important to them for justice to be done and they want to be a part of that justice. Uh, but there are going to be other people who don't try to get on the case so that they can see that justice is done, but they do see the world through the lens that they do. And it's going to be very hard to remove that and just look at the facts and the evidence and the law in this case. How can you know about the case and not have some opinion about it? You know, there may be people who are saying, uh, I'm just going to wait and see. Um, but boy, yeah, it's hard not to have some opinion about it. She also said this. I would not trust a juror who came in in Glynn County and said, I'm not familiar with this case. Um, they're either not being truthful or living in a cave, you know, or maybe not. Maybe they're just very insulated, uh, but it would be something for me to really uh, pay attention to if somebody said that. So I don't think you're going to get a person who doesn't know about the case. She said both sides will want jurors who can take the heat. There's going to be a ton of pressure. And that's one thing that I always like to ask is when you go back to, if I were the defense or, or the prosecution, I would ask if you go back to your community or your work tomorrow and you found the defendant not guilty or guilty is the, whoever's asking the question, what would the response of your coworkers, of your community members be? because that's the reality of these folks. And of course, they're not gonna be identified by name to the, to the press, it's not gonna get out there, but people are gonna know. They're gonna be, to a degree, people are gonna know. They're gonna be people observing in court or you know, all of a sudden I can't come to work for two months, you know, wonder what you're up to. Uh, people are gonna know they're on that jury and that's a huge concern. So you really do hope for people who can uh, stand up for whatever they think justice should be or demands in this case and uh, not be thinking about, oh my gosh, what are, what are my neighbors gonna say? But there again, we're all human beings. During jury selection, we're very likely to hear Batson challenges. That comes from the landmark 1986 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Batson versus Kentucky. James Batson, a black man, had been convicted of burglary and receipt of stolen goods in a Louisville courtroom by an all-white jury. 
That's because the prosecution struck all four black people on the jury panel. The Batson decision allows one side or the other to challenge jury strikes based on race. That is, if they can make a case of purposeful racial discrimination by the other side during jury selection. And once that showing is made, it's up to the other side to give a race-neutral explanation for why they struck jurors in such a way. Like the clubs they belonged to, like the bumper stickers on their car, maybe the attitude they had toward the defense or the prosecution, stuff like that. This is going to be a textbook case for Batson challenges, I'll say that. And in most cases, it's the prosecution that's accused of striking potential black jurors because of their race. But that may be turned on its head here. So I would be very surprised if the defense doesn't have a higher proportion strikes that are African-American people and the prosecution probably of white people. Um, Not because they're trying to be racist on either side, but because that's how views may align. So I would think this is right for either side to raise that type of a challenge. And then, you know, what will the judge do? Uh, the, the remedy is usually to reseat the juror if the party who struck the juror cannot give a race neutral reason for striking the juror. So, you know, that could be, uh, that could be a whole nother uh, kettle of fish as they say. But I don't mean to be simplistic, but I think the defense would want those jurors with the Confederate flag on their bumper sticker. And I think the prosecution would want those jurors with the Black Lives Matter bumper sticker. I think a lot of it is gonna come down to how people see the world. Ashley Merchant has a similar take on it. You know, if you think about it, normally the defense tends to want more liberal jurors. I mean, just, you know, in in a nutshell, and the state tends to want more law and order type jurors, you know, more standard ground type jurors. Um, In this case, it's a little bit different. So, you know, the the state's actually going to be wanting folks that are maybe a little more open-minded to the standard ground laws, Um, you know, a little bit more liberal on those. Um, It'll be interesting to see how COVID plays into that too, because typically, you know, the defense, we want people who are vaccinated. We want people who have a healthy fear of COVID. Um, I mean, and the state doesn't. Um, but in this case, those roles are going to be reversed, I think. I think that the, the people that the defense are going to be looking for are much more um, folks who support the stand your ground laws, support Second Amendment rights, um, very broad Second Amendment rights, are anti-vaccine, are think COVID is a hoax. Um, those are the type of people that I think the defense in this case, which is very rare, are going to be looking for. Finally, Delarue said something I've been thinking a lot about of late. It's something I really don't want to think about. I think of any case I've I've worked on, this case has a higher chance of a hung jury than I've ever seen. Because I think it's you really may get jurors in there who just are going to see it one way or another and dig in. It's stronger in this case than in any case I've ever seen. Okay, so we're headed off to trial. And let's not forget how we got here. Ahmad was shot and killed February 23rd, 2020. It wasn't until May 7th, more than two months later, when Greg and Travis were arrested and charged with murder. Roddy was arrested two weeks later. And as you well know, Greg, Travis, and Roddy are strongly contesting the charges. 
In our last episode, we played you some snippets from the press conference with Ahmad's mom and dad and their civil rights lawyers. One of those lawyers, Lee Merritt, explained how the case never fizzled out during the weeks after the fatal shooting. He said the difference makers were Wanda Cooper and Marcus Arbery, organizers from the NAACP, and the community of Brunswick. They all came together and never let up. Because of the dearth of leadership there, it was on the community to stand up and say, we're not simply going to move on. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Ahmaud Arbery's out there where the community has not gotten uh, wind of what happened, where there, there, is, there has been no public outcry, no national outcry. Uh, and so the, the, the lack of accountability persists. But the, the, the difference maker in this case, and, and we, we, we know that in part it was because so many people were tuned in at home, uh, that the nation was shut down, that we were still in, uh, in COVID protocols that uh, had people staying home and focused on um, uh, social media and, and, and the news. Uh, and so their attention was drawn into the Ahmaud Arbery's case. And they wanted someone, something to do with that, um, with that energy. And so when the family uh, provided the opportunity to run with Maude and call for a Jackie Johnson's removal and disbarment and call for a prosecution, the community could stand behind that call and meet it with boots on the ground. And I, I really believe that that was the, the difference in this case. Over the past year and a half, we've seen protests and demonstrations across the country over police killings of Black people. There's been a national outrage over those killings. Before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were killed, there was Ahmaud Arbery. Three men who face malice murder charges contend they were making a justified citizen's arrest, and Travis contends he was defending himself. George Floyd's killer was convicted. Breonna Taylor's was never charged. What will happen in the Ahmaud Arbery murder case? In a month or so, unless there's a hung jury, we'll have a verdict. Then, we'll know. Next, on Breakdown. We'll be dropping episodes during the trial as often as possible, so please stay tuned. As always, thank you so much for listening. Be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so. For all of us. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin, produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin, edited by Jennifer Brett, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, sound design by Asia Simone Burns. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. 
like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.